They should win the game. They get a point. We, we score a perfectly good goal. Make it 2-0. Game's done, done dusted. We win the game. This was cost us two points today. It's standard. 10 past 10. Most of the children are probably in bed, but the, these, these boys are fucking mentality giants. It's unbelievable. And Shaqiri, hasn't he the funniest shape? He's a little chunky fella. They'll fight for the tree. The joke. Gone about far this, far that. Help the officials out. Clearly they need help. Clearly, we play in the Premier League. It's a joke. It's a joke. So on the night where Liverpool meet Aston Villa in the League Cup with a team full of kids and a depleted and under-strength squad, we're very grateful to be recording the podcast at all because Jurgen Klopp ignored a handful of calls from a certain Phil Green about tugging out in case they were stuck. Hello and welcome to this week's Tree the Bag podcast. How are you, lads? Hey, Kev. How are you, Kane? How are you, Jurgen? Hey, Kev. How are you, Phil? How are you, Jurgen? So later on in part two, we'll be chatting to Art de Rocha of Football.London about all things Arsenal, who are giving Man United a run for their money in how not to handle life after the departure of a long-term manager. So we'll be discussing their season so far with Unai Emery and now Freddie Lundberg in charge. While there's so much hype around Mikel Arteta and um, his likelihood of getting the job there and the strange story surrounding Mesut Ozil this week, um, but first, what better way to begin, I suppose, than with the league leaders who have navigated the first half of a banana skin of a December to absolute perfection. Phil, we'll start with you. Where is your, this is our year's parameter right now. Are, are we okay to start really believing in that this could be it or um, are we setting ourselves up for, for danger? Today, I read in the Irish Times, Liverpool described as runaway league leaders and in the Athletic, James Pearce said Liverpool's quest for world domination takes <laughs> I've bought in fully now. I am buying I, I, as much. Uh, this is our year stock as I can get my hands on. I'm buying. You've the um, t-shirt. Like, yeah, exactly. I've the t-shirt ready to go. As <laughs> soon as I can break it out, I will be breaking it out. Um, like I'm supposed to be a bit more serious about it. Like the Le- Leicester's draw at the weekend, coupled with Liverpool just winning, like they seem <clears throat> to do nearly every week. I actually took a look at the league tables throughout Europe at the weekend just to see. Liverpool are 10 points up at this stage. And I wanted to see how that compared against the other kind of major European leagues that tend to have runaway winners. So, like, we know, um, I'm talking to Manuel on the podcast a couple weeks ago, that uh, Bayern are struggling a bit. They're fifth in the league. Real and uh, Barca are top of the league, but they're only four points ahead of Sevilla. Juventus only just began, just went ahead of uh, Inter Milan at the top. Even PSG are only eight points ahead with a game in hand at Middle East in their Farmers League. And Liverpool are ten points ahead of Leicester. Um, I'm like it's still too early to get carried away. We haven't had Christmas yet, obviously, and the only side not to win the league when being on top of Christmas is Liverpool. But it just feels a small bit different than other years in the fact that Liverpool don't seem to really mind having the weight of expectation on them. They're European champions, they're top of the table, they're not playing with that kind of weight. The way that they dispose, like you said, of a tricky start of December, the way they dispose of everything. Bournemouth, Watford, the way they went to Salzburg, weathered a storm for about 15 or 20 minutes and then just kind of eased them out of the game. They look like they're really comfortable in their own skin. Get um, carried you know. away, lads. Get carried <laughs> away. <laughs> if you can't get well, carried Keen, away... Well, you were right one of now, the first to... Yeah, you're right, you're right. Like, if your team is 10 points ahead in the league in December, I think you're within your rights to kind of shout about it and puff your chest out a small bit. Because otherwise, like you said, Keen, what's the point of being a football fan if you're not getting a bit carried away at this stage? I understand why Liverpool fans don't get carried away. You know, I mean, like, there's been years there where it's just, the scars probably still bear. But, 
Like, look, you're 10 points ahead. You don't look like losing at all, even when you're playing badly. Like, they're really... Kev, I know you were just about to say, yeah, I, I kind of like... I've been I've been talking about this like pretty much for a while. Like, like this is... It is Liverpool's year. It is Liverpool's year. I mean, just, you know, believe... Um, as as uh, once uh, as a, an infamous Dundalk fan once said, um, like the title is coming home, the perch will be back to you. Um, so yeah, I mean, like it's it's like I was talking about in the Villa game where you, you came back to win. It's like you just find a way to win, um, and it, if it's playing badly or if it's playing well, like I didn't see the Watford game, but it looked like one of those clinical performances where. Watford kind know of, Watford kind of had their chances like here and there, but you know Liverpool kind of put them away. We'll have to get a T-shirt for you as well, Keen. Just to, <laughs> uh, I, I'm drinking the Kool Aid, lads. I, I, I'm enjoying it. Like <laughs> obviously Villa are not going to win the bloody yeah. title, so I'm all I'm all throwing behind Liverpool. And you, you can live. You can live vicariously through us for, for a couple of weeks. I'm, I'm living vicariously through. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I am. I am. Um. Phil, how impressed were you with how kind of they've implemented a little bit of rotation in the first few weeks of December? Um, obviously, the kind of the big point coming into this was how many games they had, and nearly straight away, Klopp kind of mixed things up a little bit. Um, he obviously introduced um, Origi and Shakiri into the game against Everton, which um, which surprised a lot of people, and that worked pretty fine. Um, Keita is is getting some glimpses. Um, Joe Gomez has come in as well. How well have they? I mean, it nearly seems too good to be true that he can. It feels like he can pick anyone and he'll get a, he'll get a tune out of them. Yeah, it, it it's pretty remarkable, really, because like when we, we had Neil Jones on here a couple of weeks ago before the Merseyside derby, and we were talking about how Liverpool squad might start to get stretched, and you were looking at those names that we just talked about. You're looking at Shakiri. You're looking at Origi, you're looking at Gomez and Alana, and you think, really, how much depth is there, actually? Um, and then they they get out on the pitch, and like you said, they just deliver. And they've been, like, especially, like, I think Alana's really had a couple of go- a, a good couple of weeks in terms of reminding people what Klopp really liked about him. Um, like, Origi d- did his thing against Everton. I mean, if they could just put him in cold storage and play him in the derby every year, uh, like, that, that's fine by me. But it's... From a position where Liverpool kind of looked a bit dependent on a couple of key players, there looks to be more depth. The only thing I will say is, um, any time they've had to replace either of the fullbacks, it hasn't yeah. been quite as seamless. And like that's natural. I mean, you're talking about a very steep drop off from two of the best in their position in the world to Joe Gomez as a centre half covering right back, or James Milner who's 34, whatever he is, and he's he doesn't really have the legs to play left-back on a consistent basis anymore. I thought you saw that at the weekend against Watford. Um, so it's the only place where I think if there was a longer-term injury, like for a, a game here and there against the likes of Watford and Brighton and stuff, I think it's going to be okay. But it, the rotation this month has filled me with confidence, except in the event of an injury to either of those full-backs, because yeah. I just think it might be a touch light. I'm keen. We're obviously recording this before... Um the Tuesday night League Cup quarterfinal. So mm. um, by the time the podcast comes out, this uh, this could be a, a bit of a moot point. But how <laughs> how concerned are you about Villa facing this this Liverpool side um, with an average age of nineteen? I think um, their mm. lowest squad number is number fifty one. I mean, there has to be a little bit of a little bit of kind of a, a little slight worry there that 
Aston Villa might might be that team to lose to that Liverpool team. Uh, look, lads, I haven't said it before the podcast started. Like, I would not be an Aston Villa fan if I was not absolutely terrified <laughs> right now. Um, like, I'm I'm more concerned with the uh, with the game finishing before regulation time. Like, half of these lads like surely have like a curfew to get home to. Like, do you know what I can away? Yeah, look, uh, like I'm kind of to be honest, lads, I'm a little bit annoyed with Liverpool um, mm. that they've kind of turned this. And I'm being very careful here, but they've kind of turned this into a a, a non fixture, really, because mm. like Villa in reality should not be losing um, to to a side that young um, and inexperienced. Um, now we do have a reputation for for losing games that we really, really shouldn't be losing, um, especially in cup ties. But uh, yeah, like Villa should be winning that. So it's it's yeah, I'm I'm obviously just naturally concerned in terms of like Villa's drop off and form in terms of the performances but in reality we, we should be winning but I am annoyed with Klopp because like I haven't having said it to you beforehand lads that like w- why could he not have left uh, you know two or three of the senior lads that might not have been, you know gotten a game or he should have been leaving a, a, a couple behind um, and not giving Villa such a free hit because do you know like United uh, I've, I've kind of not really kind of cogently thought about this, but remember United were in the same sort of scenario and pulled out of the FA Cup because they couldn't give both tournaments, um, you know, due attention. I mean, like, Liverpool are kind of doing something similar here, but mm. just not really doing it, if that makes sense. Like, they're, they're, they're doing just what they have to, and, and like... Jurgen Klopp is basically saying, look, I don't really want to be in this competition. I'll sacrifice it um, for the greater good, which is fair enough. Like, that's his remit. Um, but it, it does really undermine the competition. And I, I've seen it on the on my timeline today where there probably will be a poor turn at Villa Park tonight. And there there are there is a certain sense of apathy amongst Villa um amongst Villa fans that they're just like, oh look, what's the point? Like, you know, kind of way. that that like in saying that, that could go all tits up now in the next like hour and a half. Um <laughs> but but yeah, um that's kind of where I'm standing on it. Phil, you had an interesting point there um before we came on the podcast that and at the time when I heard that this fixture was actually going ahead, because I presumed it would be um, moved maybe um, to another week. Obviously, they would have kind of messed up the schedule entirely. But I thought Liverpool would have pulled some strings and got the fixture moved so they could feel a fairly mm. strong team. Yeah, uh, I'd say Klopp probably saw Leicester are in the quarter quarterfinals, City are in the quarterfinals. Yeah. If we get knocked out here, they've potentially three more games to their schedule, yeah. and that's going to help us. hundred percent. I mean. Like Keane said, I, I, there is a definite sense that Klopp is happy to sacrifice this tournament, and this is the easiest and cleanest way for him to do it because um, none of his big players are going to get injured, none of his big players are going to lose confidence, they're not going to lose momentum, um, and the, the, it, like the best case scenario is the young lads go out, maybe score a goal and lose like two or three one. Like that's a great that's a great result for Liverpool because as you said, Kev. Uh, with City and Leicester both in the quarterfinals and probably likely to make semis, that's at least two more games added to their schedule in mid-January when the fixtures are going to be at their height anyway, um, as well as any kind of Champions League stuff that kicks in a little later. Um, so it just gives Liverpool a couple of, a couple of breaks midweek that their title challengers maybe won't get. Um, but also, I think why Klopp 
is bringing so many senior players to Qatar when most of them are only actually going to play the final. Like by all accounts, he's going to play <clears throat> a pretty rotated team for the semi final. Um, but I think the general consensus is he's using this. He likes to take them away on uh, warm weather training camps this time of year. Mm. And the con- I think the consensus is this is going to act as that. Yeah. Um, which is interesting in itself. Um, I, I, I heard an interesting point made in the, on, on an Anfield Rap podcast uh, earlier this week that um, when these when these fixtures look like they're piling up uh, last month, people were kind of saying, "God, that could be a sticking point for Liverpool." But if we get out uh, getting out through the other side of this into kind of February and March, we could look back at it as a bit of a masterstroke from Klopp playing the minor team uh, against Villa, taking all the seniors off to Qatar for a nice warm weather training camp. And then um, save themselves a couple of midweek ties, so it could actually end up looking mm. quite good for Liverpool in a couple of months' time if all goes to plan. Um, mm. But yeah, I, I think it's a, like from Klopp's selfish point of view, I think it's a risk-free way of saving some time and some legs for his senior players. But I agree with Keane. Like, if you take a kind of a, a zoomed-out view of it, it doesn't look great for the competition because he's playing, like you said, an average age of nineteen, a couple of sixteen-year-olds, a couple of seventeen-year-olds. Lads who even Liverpool fans are probably going to struggle to pick out of a lineup. Um, so it yep. doesn't look great for the competition, but if Liverpool win the league, Kane, I'll wear my t shirt. I'll be happy. Do you know, I was thinking, lads, as well, um, just as Phil was talking there, I was like, it, it's, it's so much of a free hit for Liverpool, this, that in, in essence, even a loss doesn't really feel like a loss. It's yeah. it's it's not it's not the squad like you know it's not a it's not a senior Liverpool squad it, like no none of the seniors senior team if they lose tonight will will have that sense of oh we've just lost a game mm-hmm. you know they won't even care like they'll probably be watching in Doha somewhere but they won't care like um because they, they're going to go into their own game tomorrow night they'll probably win and and the feeling just sort of continues so it's is like. It's like the freest of free hits, um, which is which is very very rare, um, and yeah, I'm, I'm shitting it. <laughs> <laughs> In terms of um, the league competitors, um, we mentioned Leicester and Man City, um, and Leicester hit a pothole this weekend uh, with the draw against Norwich, and they're now what should be bearing an absolutely chaotic downfall from Liverpool. Um, that should be an insurmountable ten point gap between them. Um, and the leaders. So we're kind of back to turning our attention to Man City, um, who even though they weren't massively fantastic against Arsenal, I thought, but they do have Kevin De Bruyne, who kind of reminded everyone that as long as he's around and on top form, then City have a small chance. What do you think, Keen? Yeah, again, like De Bruyne, it was just sensational, really. Like he was unstoppable. Mm. Um, I would take I would take a slight issue to say that they didn't play that well against Arsenal. And I know Pep was talking about, oh yeah, like they didn't play that well, and or they played better against United. But like, come on, they were really really good. Like they were like two 0 up <laughs> after fifteen minutes, or three 0 up after like thirty five no thirty five forty thirty eight minutes. I mean, they they were the first or the first side to keep Arsenal uh, scoreless. Yeah. Um, this season as well. I mean, it was a pretty all round. Uh, decent, like really, really good performance. Um, yeah, I, I mean, like, look, De Bruyne. Uh, I seen John Giles, John Giles, um, kind of giving out stink about De Bruyne and how he was like, you know, this spoiled brat and all that. Which is like, probably, I'm going off on a tangent here, but like, how often does John Giles get it wrong these days? 
Like, like every time I, I click on a link from off the ball, um, in which Giles is talking about a, a player or a team, he just seems to be like on that, you know, old man shouting at the cloud and, and doesn't really offer much insight. Um, anymore but yeah I digress sorry guys um, in, in terms of De Bruyne yeah like sensational performance I don't think he's papering over the crap craps cracks cracks um, <laughs> I, I do think I do think Liverpool's uh, oh sorry Man City's defence is crap um, they are incredibly porous I know we didn't really get to touch on it um, in terms of the derby but they were so wide open against United it was incredible um, like I've, I've I've been used to watching sort of porous defenses um, in terms of Villa this year, but they took the biscuit against United. They were they were a little bit more compact against um, against Arsenal, but I think that's because Otamendi came back in and, and partnered um, and partnered Fernandinho. But in reality, like, and it's it's shown time and time again this season that defence is just not going to hold up. And City can forget about progressing in, in the Champions League. Like, not a hope are they getting by with Fernandinho and, and Otamendi um, in that defence. Stones, I think, is, is going to be out injured. Um, and obviously, Laporte's not going to be back. So, look, I don't think it's right to say De Bruyne's performances have papered over the cracks. It's just that when City play really well and you give them the space, they will tear you a new one. But that defence is just not going to hold up against the elite. Um, Phil, when I saw um, City had picked up Madrid in the, in the Champions League draw, it kind of got me thinking. I mean, it kind of feels the way that they're performing in the league and now with a really difficult draw um, in, the, in, in the last 16, that... Pep and City are kind of coming to their natural conclusion. Would, would you agree with that? Um, I mean, I'm, they have a very difficult kind of Christmas period coming up. They've they've Leicester and Wolves, um, and I mean, if they follow that up with a couple of more draws and maybe a loss, um, and then if they get knocked out in the Champions League, you'd really think that Pep will probably be uh, be looking to pack his bags in the summer. Yeah, I mean, I saw an interesting point raised uh, during the week, uh, kind of asking the question, is fourth season Pep the same as third season Jose? Now, he's not quite as destructive as that, and he'll he'll never kind of blow up uh, with players the same way Jose does tend to do in his third season. But it's an interesting point that because how demanding Guardiola is and the success that he's gotten everywhere he's gone, he does kind of grate on people after a while. I mean, like I know we've spoken before, if I was Mikel Arteta, I'd have clocked Guardiola by now, just like the amount of contact and things he made oh anyway he's very demanding and he exacts such um high standards on players that like city have had two of the best seasons of all time in the premier league um like beyond a shadow of a doubt they've been absolutely fantastic um but you're right if like the league looks gone um it's a harder champions league draw than they would have liked and it's a harder champions league draw than they're used to they're used to getting quite decent draws until latter stages of tournaments like if if I was in Pep's shoes, I'd be I'd be throwing everything at the Champions League. If they lose that out in the last sixteen, like a couple of wins adrift in the league, and you do wonder where you go from there because all of a sudden, like Silva's going at the end of the season, Fernandinho's not getting any younger, Aguero's not getting any younger. You're talking about maybe having to kind of regenerate the squad again, and if his contract only runs till twenty twenty one anyway, 
does it just kind of suit people? And I know they've kind of put a lot of effort in in City this year to kind of lay the groundwork for when Guardiola does go. So they've had Giovanni Bronkhorst in behind the scenes, getting used to the club. Now, people are saying is that to do a kind of a more of a director of football role is to do maybe taking the reins over. Arteta is somebody we're going to talk about in a while. Um, with Art, I know um, there's been talk from Sam Lee in the, on, in the Athletic that they might like Arteta as well. So like, there's a lot up in the air for City and probably a lot riding on that Champions League tie with Guardiola. Because if they can get by Real, you feel like maybe the competition starts to open up a bit. And we know it's the one that matters to Guardiola and it's the one that really matters to the ownership. And uh, mm. The fans aren't mad about it, I know, because of all their various problems with UEFA. But it could also be City's last chance to win it for a couple of years. Um, I know Tony Evans in The Independent in the UK is uh, reporting that, kind of contrary to previous reports, City might actually be looking at a ban from the Champions League for the financial fair play stuff. So they might be kind of last chance mm-hmm. alone. Um, so like, <laughs> it's a very long-winded way of answering, Kev. I think there's a lot riding on the Champions League, Ty Royale. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that goes belly up, then you are probably looking at a bit of a drift at the end of the season. And who knows where Guardiola's mind might start going. Well, there's sorry to call in lads, but there's two things that I did not know about Man City. So David Silva is off at the end of the season. Is that being confirmed? Unless I'm absolutely raving, I'm pretty sure this is his last season with City. Yeah, I think he's leaving his contracts up at the end of the season and he's gone. Right, right. That's 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 a big one. I didn't realise that. I mean, obviously he's been been there like nine, ten years, which mm. is incredible. Like when you think about it, but um, does, like obviously nobody knows where he's off to. No, I haven't heard it reported. Um, yeah, and obviously then the second one was uh, Van Bronckhorst. That that's very interesting. I have heard his name mentioned, you know, prospectively in terms of like the, the Man City job in future. But I would have thought he doesn't really have the pedigree at all to to you know, even as a in in a sporting director role. I don't think he'd have a, mm. a pedigree there to to go in. And I mean, like, who steps down there? Is it is it one of you know? Um, the two the two Barcelona ex Barcelona lads, um, yeah. so yeah, that's that seems like a lot of upheaval. But I mean, to, to to continue Phil's point, I suppose in terms of Guardiola lads, like he, surely he has to move the majority of that play, that that playing squad on because they're, they're, it, it's like Phil said they're probably sick of listening to to Guardiola. So. If you, you need to do either one of two things, move the manager on or move the majority of the playing staff on. Um, and that obviously will require a, a huge rebuilding. And Pep, this is is this this is equal. His his four-year stint now at City will equal his four-year stint at Barcelona um, with, the, with the senior side at least. Um, so, so, yeah, it would be breaking the mould for him to, to kind of like go one, one or two years more. So, It'll be definitely interesting at the end of the season to see what happens. And obviously, the only thing that I think would go in Guardiola's favour, at least in terms of staying at City, would be that Klopp, Klopp and Liverpool are going to win the league this year, which would really give you know Guardiola really put the bit between his teeth um, to, to win back the title. Um, and obviously, Klopp's going to hang around for another few years. So, um, yeah, yeah, obviously remains to be seen. But it's an interesting sort of. Um, it's an interesting sort of sideshow as to what happens um, come season's end. Um, let's check quickly about Duncan Ferguson and Everton. Um, and I thought it was great to see him get the result against Chelsea the other week. 
Um, he's clearly majorly passionate about the club um, and could possibly have that kind of motivational factor that could spur Everton on. So I was thinking, yeah, you know, maybe this has some potential. I mean, obviously he has no kind of background in management, but could he be the one to to get them going after a couple of years um, where managers have struggled to do that? Um, but the way he managed Moise Keane, and obviously it was a good result against Man United in Old Trafford to get a draw, but the way he, he managed that situation just put an end to any potential I thought he had. Because, um, Phil, it's got to be page one of your new manager handbook not to bring on and then take off one of your most expensive signings ever. I mean, a chap we've spoken about already, he's already clearly kind of suffering at the club. Um, he hasn't bedded in yet. He's still only 19 years old. I mean, what a message to send to one of to one of who should be one of your best young players. Yeah, like uh, like you said, it, it it should be on uh, page one of Management 101, and it's definitely page one of Mismanagement 101 to bring him on, hook him, and then not even look at him when you hook him, uh, and then to clearly fabricate a story. <laughs> like, I want fresh... Like, like you, you reminded me a little bit of, like, Boris or somebody, uh, as he was kind of scrambling on the pitch there with Jeff Shreves, and he was talking about I wanted to get fresh legs on the pitch, and they're like, "Well, he was the freshest legs on the pitch," um, and like it, it, like it, it just felt <laughs> like it was a rush of blood to the head. From and believe it or not, lads, Duncan Ferguson is susceptible to a rush of blood to the head. I don't know if anyone could have guessed that from his playing career, but um, like it just felt like a stupid, impetuous decision. And like you, like it felt like something was brewing after that Chelsea game. You know, he's picking up the ball boys and twirling them around, and he was wearing the the Everton sweatband with his. Uh, suit and everything just felt a bit more a bit more oomph to it and then that just deflated the whole thing for me I mean for a man who's regarded as one of football's hard men it was a pretty cowardly thing to do I think Mm -hmm. Uh, completely undermines a young player like you said Kev who's kind of struggled to bet in he got dropped from a squad against Southampton uh, because he was late for for training or late for the bus or a meeting or something he's had a few kind of issues like that um, betting in his first season outside of Italy um, and then I don't think it's it's any coincidence that this week you're starting to see stories come out that oh actually Moise Keane was, yeah. wasn't Everton's first choice and they kind of got landed with him and thought it was a good opportunity and a punt and all this sort of stuff whereas when he was signed it was very much spun as this is like a potential game changer and um, so it just makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable it definitely undermines the kid I mean hopefully there's a way back from but if Ferguson was to stay on the ticket, it feels like kind of a crucially undermined. Um, like maybe if if Ancelotti comes in as his rumoured, that could be good for him. Um, obviously, like with somebody who who speaks the language, somebody who would be more familiar with him as a player. Um, but like for, for, I just thought it was really cowardly from Ferguson, and then not to front mm-hmm. up to it afterwards with Reeves. Like that was my overriding feeling on it. It was just a coward's move. Mm. Like I, I would probably have to be careful here with what I say. Um, because I can't really say what I really want to say, um, but in, in essence, like it was not a good look. That was yeah. not a good look for what happened there, um, especially not embracing him afterwards, like you know, flat out ignoring him, like he was shit on his shoe. Um, that that was a terrible look, and the the meme or whatever like that was going around after the game was the uh, was the tweet where it was like Marcel Brands when he was presented as a, an Everton player and his mom was in the shot and he was like we're going to look after your son and then the, the the other shot obviously is him walking down the tunnel on after being substituted um 18 minutes into an appearance um and you're just like 
it's it's it 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 felt like it fe- did any of you see um Carragher's uh, Jamie Carragher's analysis of the situation on, on Monday Night Football. No, I didn't. There, there was there was a clip of it doing the rounds, like it's only five minutes, where he basically he nearly kind of breaks down uh, Keane's performance in that eighteen minutes, and, and as and he's he's also sort of like looking at what Ferguson is also sort of relaying as uh, to, to Keane as it's happening, and it's like he patently looks like he's not happy with Keane's performance, and, and seems to kind of like get something stuck in his head and then he's just constantly going at him. Even though Keane was actually doing what I thought, I thought he was performing reasonably okay. There was nothing wrong with it. Um, so I, I felt like it was one of those, you know, I'm a hard man. I'm going to set my, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to put my foot down here. I'm going to set a precedent. Um, and, and to do that to a kid of that age um, just felt wrong to me. Um, and that's, and that's putting it nicely. Um, but yeah, yeah. I tell you, well, I can remember his name, Rob Little. He died. He ran away and left his wife for a young. And depends of the quality of the eggs. In the supermarket, you have eggs class one, class two, class three. And some are more expensive than others, and some give you better omelets. So when when the class one X are in Waitrose and you cannot go there. Real Madrid is not Barcelona. It's off his small team. Have many problems. I want my players play with balls. We're on with Art DeRosha, the Arsenal reporter for Football.London. Thanks for joining the show, Art. Uh, that's fine. Uh, happy to join in with you guys and talk Arsenal. Um, so I suppose amongst the three of us, we've been kind of wanting to cover Arsenal um, on the podcast for a while now. And it seems week after week, they keep coming with the stories and the content between Unai Emery um, and the Xhaka incident. Um, and then you have Mesut Ozil this week, um, Freddie Lundberg getting the job um, temporarily. Um, and it seems like they're really giving Man United a run for their money in how not to run a club um, after losing a long-term manager. Um, Art, let's chat about the season to date uh, first and what culminated really in Emery's departure after just a year and a bit in charge. Yeah, I think, like you said, they kind of, they kind of are rivaling Manchester United with that kind of how not to run a club after such big managers left. And I think um, they haven't gone as far down that road as Manchester United yet. And that's probably a warning sign that they can have uh, going forward. But um, I'd say the season so far has just been loads of twists and turns. And uh, with January coming forward, they need to just kind of uh, set in stone what direction they want to move in after all this is passed over and hopefully they can kind of get back on their feet uh, once the new year is in the horizon. It's been a very inconsistent year, um, I suppose you could call it so far. They've, they've five wins and five losses. 
um, and they haven't really been able to string a couple of results together. Um, was there any kind of feeling that Emery was going to last out the season? I mean, I think he had a clause whereby his two-year contract could have been extended or not, or was the feeling really that we have to get rid of him now and kind of freshen things up um, as soon as possible because it really wasn't working under him? Yeah, that was, I think, another really um, difficult one because, yeah, he did have that uh, extension that he could have got another year after this year. But even the way Arsenal handled sacking him was quite strange in that a couple weeks before they... um, like publicised that they were quite confident in keeping him at the club and uh, backing him for the rest of the season. And then a couple of weeks later, he's he's been sacked. So I think the inconsistencies haven't just been on the pitch of Arsenal. It's very much been uh, something that's been kind of littered throughout the club. And that is something that really needs to be fixed, even um, with Emery gone. Even after that, they kind of have kept those inconsistencies going with appointing Freddie Lundberg, who didn't have his own backroom staff, which kind of um, not backfired, but it really showed against Manchester City the other day how 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 little resources he had compared to Pep Guardiola. Did I mean Freddie's had had a pretty bad start to to, to life um, as manager? Was he ever really in contention, do you think, full-time for the job? Um, I mean, it seems pretty strange that they would bring him in but not give him the opportunity to, to pick some of his staff. Yeah, I think I think that decision was uh, very quick just to kind of get somebody in. And I think if he had um, done well in... So he's had five games now. Uh, if he'd done well in those games, I think... He would have been someone they could have looked at uh, as um, the permanent choice going forward. But saying that, with with no one around him, with Permetasakad still doing um, the job as the academy manager as well as being his assistant, he couldn't really, he didn't really have the tools to succeed in the first place. So I think that that boat probably sailed quite quickly for him. Art, um, good to, good to speak to you. Uh, I was really interested in, in obviously it's no secret that Arteta is going to be your new manager, it's going to be Arsenal's new manager. I mean, speaking to people close to me who have close ties to, to Arsenal themselves, they really, really rate Arteta. They think he's like cold, he's ruthless, he's a great coach, very hands-on. Um, do, you, do you see him being a, a success or and do you see him kind of, or do you see him being a huge risk or both? Personally, I, I do see it as a risk and I think that um, in some cases it could have been the same as just giving uh, Lundberg the job full-time because they're both assistant coaches at at this moment in time neither of neither of them have got their own kind of team around them to to just kind of uh feed their ideas to the players but that being said if he is given the job on a full-term basis then he will have that chance to get people around him that he knows that he can 
um, trust to instill his ideas of football into Arsenal. And I think uh, that's something that Freddie Jungberg might have gone if he was given the job full time. But uh, but obviously, with, without that as an interim boss, he couldn't really show what he could do properly. And I think another thing that um, that helps Arteta anyway is how highly Pep Guardiola has spoken about him as well. And he's been credited a lot with the kind of improvement of uh, Raheem Sterling's uh, game in the final third, as well as Leroy Sane. And Arsenal might look at that and see Nicolas Pepe kind of coming in and out of the side and think, oh, maybe that's something that um, he can he can help us with while he's still um, learning the ropes of management. Mm. I, I just finally wanted to ask you, it's regarding the fan base at Arsenal, and, and you know, I suppose a lot of clubs' fans are the same, you know, but there's cer- there seems to be a certain lack of patience there, particularly with Arsenal fans, and that might be, uh, you know, that might be something got to do with the perception of Arsenal fan TV and and you know how it can get a bit raucous and and nearly a, a meme in itself. Do, do you find that that the fans' lack of patience can have a huge effect on on managers and and how they fare out? Uh, I'd say that could be the same at any club, really. I think mm. um, even though. Arsenal's fan base is very loud. Um, there's instances in Valencia with Gary Neville, Gary Neville that I can think of where I think he said um, once the fans like wave their white handkerchiefs, that's kind of uh, the signal for a manager uh, getting sacked. So I don't think it's just an Arsenal problem or it might not even be a problem anyway because that could just be a confirmation for for the hierarchy at whatever club it is that um, that something needs to change. Uh, with that being said, I'd say um, sometimes it's not... Um, sometimes the reputation uh, that Arsenal fans get can be a bit unfair, I think, um, even though some are quite uh, vocal in their dislike of... Um, of a manager maybe or a player there there is still a balance uh, where um where some parts of the fan base really like a player whereas others don't and i think you'd probably get that at most clubs across the country and in the world but just as arsenal is such a big club um on social media as well that's mm. that just gets um a, big, a bigger light um shines on it i think Art, it's uh, Phil here. Great to great to speak to you. Um, as we've been saying, Arsenal haven't exactly been short of controversies this year, but one man who's kind of hogged a lot of the headlines has been Mesut Ozil for uh, actions on and off the pitch. And this week, he's kind of found himself in the middle of it again um, after posting on Instagram earlier in the week in support of uh, the persecution, as he sees it, of uh, Uyghur Muslims uh, by the Chinese government. Arsenal have kind of taken a bit of flack uh, for their reaction to it or maybe their kind of lack of reaction and lack of support from Ozil. Um, I, I don't think it's unfair to say that Arsenal's motivation here has been in protecting their commercial interests. Uh, 
but what are the, what is the scale of those commercial interests for Arsenal in China? Like, what do they stand to lose if they don't handle this situation in a way that's deemed acceptable by the powers that be? I think, obviously, Arsenal is such a global brand that uh, it won't hurt them uh, drastically, I don't think, but they will still feel an effect if, like, like what happened on Sunday where the match was pulled from broadcast. I think they, they will feel an effect there and they will want to kind of mend ties with China in that sense because as we all as we all know, football's become a business rather than just a sport now. So Arsenal will probably in in not supporting Ozil straight off the bat, I think that's something that was probably playing in their minds. Um not to not to say that they don't support Ozil, but it's something that would make them kind of have a, a second guess before they do. And it is a very kind of thin line they have to tread with how they deal with it, both uh, with Ozil and with uh, with China. So it, um, it's, it's a difficult one to kind of get your head around, but they... They should be able to, <laughs> I say that, but you never know, but they should be able to sort something out, I, I think. Um, I, I don't know if you saw um, Tariq Panja, the, um, the New York Times football correspondent, he said, uh, he, he's, he's quoted on Twitter today, that a, a source that he has in China says that uh, there's 0.1% of a percent of a chance of Arsenal being shown while Ozil is still at the club. And <laughs> that will be the same for any club that Ozil goes to in the future. Um, the Premier League probably has a higher proportion of uh, well-known Muslim players than nearly any other major league in the world. I mean, obviously Ozil, Salah, Mane, Paul Pogba. Uh, in his post, Ozil called out other Muslims for not supporting the Uyghur tribe and their troubles. Do you think that this um, hard stance from China and the fact that it will impact the club's bottom line might explain why some of these higher-profile Muslim players haven't stood up like Ozil has? Yeah, I think there's probably a lot of uh, truth in that because he can see in um, Yaya Torre's quotes as well earlier today saying that Mesut Ozil shouldn't have said what he said because of the difficulties that it can bring to others. So I think there is a, a sense of worry, like people thinking before they speak. But I think even with that, Ozil has been quite um, outspoken uh, before this. And wouldn't, I wouldn't say outspoken, I'd say... He's been quite vocal in his support for charities involving those that are less fortunate that he, than he is. Um, so I wouldn't say it was a surprise that he, he shed light on that situation. I'd say it's just something he probably felt that he had to address and that he felt that others needed to address. Whether they follow suit is not really up to him, I don't think, but he'd like to see others follow suit with him. Um Art to finish off, I suppose we'll we'll step back um to the football side of things. Um and firstly, I suppose how likely or how soon rather do you think Mikel Arteta um will be installed as manager? Um and what I suppose at this point would be a good season for Arsenal. I mean they're 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 just inside the top ten at the moment. Um they have um they have the FA Cup to come, obviously, um, and they're still in the Europa League. Um, 
what would be a good season signing off for them with with the new manager? Yeah, so with Arteta, I've seen uh, kind of time scale of around like forty eight hours. I think that would be quite um, something, as he probably wouldn't have a lot of uh, time to train with the players before the match against Everton, and that kind of leaves Arsenal a bit vulnerable. But with Everton going after Ancelotti as well, they might be in the same mm. situation. Um, and then as for um, going forward with the season, I, I'd say I'd say pro- pro- probably uh, a similar end to the season um, as they had last year. Not in, the type, in terms of the form that they showed, but just getting back up the table, which is possible. I mean, Tottenham showed that with um, when they when they appointed uh, Jose Mourinho and got that manager bounce. No, nobody thought they could shoot up into top four contention like they have, and they've actually managed to do that. And so, you can't really rule that out with Arsenal, even if their form has been terrible in the last few months, where they've won just one game in it. Uh, one game in 11. So, yeah, I'd say expect- expectations shouldn't be too high. And there are still chances for silverware with the FA Cup and the Europa League. But just kind of steadying the ship should be the main focus rather than keeping expectations on whoever the new Arsenal uh, head coach will be. Great stuff, Art. Um, we really appreciate you coming on the podcast tonight. Thanks for joining us. That's all right. Uh, I enjoyed myself and I hope you guys uh, had a good time with me as well.